Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm on a laptop on Ash Wednesday with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And also on our screens, all the way from upstate New York, is the one and only David Dalton. Hi, David. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> hey man. Great to see you. Like, David is. Hello, one of Finland. The- where was i david is one of the great rock and roll writers uh he was an early contributor to rolling stone and is the author of amazing books about janice joplin and jim morrison marianne faithful for which you won the ralph j gleason award and yes even sid vicious in this episode we're going to talk to you david about the beach boys Charles Manson, The Beatles, and more. But I I do feel the need to note this is the first episode we're recording since Putin's invasion of Ukraine. So we're all in some shock at the horror of it all. And I just want to ask you briefly, David, how it all looks and feels from your side of the pond. Oh, it's absolutely horrendous. I mean, I, I just, I can't believe that we've gone back into this horrible time warp where... Uh, sort of the age in which I was born. I was born during the Second World War Mm. with, you know, Nazis bombing the hospital I was born in. Can I ask you what your sense of how people in America are feeling about Ukraine at the moment? Well, I live in a small town in cow country, and all my neighbors here are all Trumpsters. Yeah. And, you know, I get on fine with them. But, you know, they belong to, you know, this weird cult that's now actually in a state of confusion because they can't actually really support Putin. No. Basically, you know, liberals, lefties, old radicals like Coco and myself, you know, are absolutely horrified by this. I'm stunned. I'm absolutely stunned by it. Yeah. Having so- I mean, having said that, there is a component, certainly the British left, which is more opposed to NATO than it is to Putin's Russia. And they're in a state of deep confusion at the moment. Yes, to be said. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, you're you're right to point out the confusion because, you know, we read all the time about Trumpsters who broadly think Putin is a good thing in cracking down on, um, you know, homosexuals (laughs) and unbelievers. Yeah. So, So they don't really know what where they stand do they right now no 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 i mean i i can't believe you know communism anti-communism i mean used to be the absolute horror of america from the mccarthy era onward and to find now people are supporting a russian dictator it's Beyond belief. Yeah, yeah, but but the thing is, is the Democrats who are communists these days, according to Marjorie <laughs> yeah, Taylor, whatever left. her name is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Democrats are the yeah. communists, and Putin's yeah, yeah. just a brave, smart guy, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, look, I mean... Uh, let's move on. Let's yeah. move on. I, I, I just, <laughs> I mean, Mark and I agreed before we couldn't really start the podcast pretending we're in some sort of cocoon away from all of this. It is absolutely terrifying and deeply up 
upsetting, but we're going to try and have some fun talking today and revisit your career, David. Uh, in your, this could be the last podcast of the pre-nuclear <laughs> era. Oh, God, oh yeah. Stop it. Stop, stop. it. <laughs> David, all right, whatever it is, we're gonna, we've got to make Rock it and the, roll. the best <laughs> ever. It's going to be the best ever. Yeah. <laughs> you have an extraordinary story starting with how you went to America in the first place at the age of 17. Mm-hmm. Can you relive that for us, David? Well, what happened was my father, who had some very odd ideas like making sugar out of smoke and that sort of thing. And he, anyway, he was invited to some, some conference in New York. And my sister and I we were both in English boarding schools and dying to get out, came with him. And then once here, of course, refused to leave. We were not going back to our <laughs> prisons, our expensive prisons. So my father said, well, you know, you, you're not going to get into college over the summer. And, but it turned out his nurse was Joseph Campbell's niece. So had him to dinner. And, you know, he sits down, a complete pompous ass, and he says, Quo tandem, O Catalina, abutere patienta nostra. So I said, oh, that's the Catalina orations. Then, then he says, NRK inhologos. And I said, oh, beginning of the Gospel of St. John in Greek, you know. So he did about six of these, and he said, that boy is a genius. He must go to Colombia. I mean, any English schoolboys, you know, would recognize these, or at least from my era, would, would recognize these quotations. So I, I got into Colombia, went to Colombia. I got through in three years because, of course, I'd been studying these dead languages since childhood. When I got out of Colombia with a degree in classical languages, not terribly useful for life, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I thought, well, there's three possible career choices in the 60s. One is rock star, and I'm practically tone deaf. Another is drug dealer, and I I don't really have sort of the street smarts for that. And photographer. So I became a photographer. And it was very opportune because the British invasion had just started. And they're all like my age. It was very easy to take photographs, and I could sell them all over the place. I was a pretty good photographer, actually. I'll just show you one. Here, this is the iconic picture of the Shangri-Las. Oh, yes. Fabulous. <laughs> it's a it's wonderful a nice picture. picture. Yeah. It's a picture <laughs> that, for, for our listeners who obviously can't see this, this is a picture of the Shangri-Las, which I only realized about two or three weeks ago you had taken that iconic yeah. picture, David. I didn't really even know about your photographic career, to be honest with you. Oh, I, I did. I, what I would do is I'd make little tableaus, like I did one of the animals. We've got to get out of this place with a big rope. And then at that point, I acquired an assistant, Linda Eastman. <laughs> I was photographing Ahmet Erdogan with a bunch of salesmen with gold records at the scene. And uh, I'd brought along my, my neighbor to look as if I had an assistant. And after I'd taken this picture, this very sort of old-fashioned looking girl comes over, sort of dressed in a, a kind of a twin set, like Lord and Taylor, which would be a very sort of conservative. And she says, oh, do, is this what you do for a living? Do you photograph rock people? So I said sort of like, whatever that, that uh, um, well, come up to my studio, baby, you know. 
<laughs> Channeling Austin Powers from that, the that's future. That's what I was Thank you. Thank you, Austin Powers. <laughs> Groovy, so baby. She yeah. actually was, you know, really good at it because especially the English bands, you know, they all wanted to fuck her. They always gave me a hard time. They'd give me the finger or they'd say, well, it was a pity Percy couldn't have been here. And I'd say, what? There's six people in this group? But anyway, I finally sort of really gave up my career as a photographer for two reasons. One is Linda basically took it over. And also Rolling Stone had, so I saw the first issue of Rolling Stone and I called Jan and I started sending him photographs. And he said, well, you know, this is great, man, but we need stories. And I said, well, I can write. I'm English. <laughs> I mean, as, as if that's an explanation. So that's really how I started writing. And I, uh, you know, I, I considered writing a higher calling. You know, my wife always says, why didn't you keep taking fucking photographs? You, you know, we'd, we'd have all the stuff to sell now, you know. What was your first inkling as to, you know, rock criticism, music journalism? You know, the first thing I have to say is I'm really not a rock critic. I didn't write criticism of albums or anything. I'm an absolute hagiographer, I'm embarrassed to say. I really, <laughs> you know, I think that the kind of generation that followed me was sort of, you know, Nick Kent or Ben Fong Torres were a lot more cynical and funny about the people they were dealing with. But I absolutely idolized these people. I mean, mm. James Brown was like, God, oh my God. And, you know, the fact that I got to tour with him, get on the on the Learjet. And, and then our first stop was the uh, uh, Macon Airport. So we get out and he, he said to me, come on, man, let's, let's go have a piss or something. I said, James, I, I don't, I don't have to. He said, come on, you got to go. So I, I, you know, being a I thought, what is this? Going to the men's room with James Brown. But, you know, as I'm walking there, I, I said, why? And he says, integration, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so we, 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 we stood at the urinal and, and you know, his, his face with those teeth and everything. He's, he's kind of looking at me with this big grin. I couldn't pee if I... If I tried, I mean, I'm sure. But yeah, like James Brown, Janice, the Stones, all these people, I absolutely idolize, and I sort of do to this day. I mean, I always say to people, beware, you know, becoming friendly with your idols because they're, you know, they're feet of clay, and they're probably going to do horrible things to you. But yeah, so I didn't have a critical attitude to all this. I was just. You know, Little Richard. Oh, my God, Little Richard. For sure. Well, we have uh, that piece on Rock's Back Pages. I think it's called Little Richard, Child of God. Oh, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you know, Richard bought, like, I don't know, 200 copies of Rolling Stone. And he pasted his living room with uh, copies of that cover. Wow. Wow. That was... Um, That's amazing. That yeah. Amazing. I mean, you were one of the very first, you know, important writers on Rolling Stone and and in a sense you kind of defined what 
journalism about the counterculture was. I wasn't reading Rolling Stone in 1967 or, or 68. I, I obviously came to your writing a bit later, but I think of you now. I mean, I remember watching the Festival Express movie when you're on the train with Janice Joplin and Jerry Garcia and Rick Danko and and there you are in the in the background. It's just like you know, anyone ever doubted that you'd been this witness to pop history, this kind of <laughs> zelig figure? I mean, there you are, grinning happily with these. Oh yeah, amazing super. Well, you know, Owsley was. I think he was either on the train or at least he gave us a whole bunch of acid. So we had acid and we had Janice, but crates of tequila and of course there's a famous story where we stopped at this tiny town we'd run out of booze the train came with you know a ton of booze and we went down to this liquor store and we bought everything i mean every bottle of everything including the you know iconic whiskey bottle that's like you know five feet high (laughs) (laughs) it was an absolutely great trip it was sort of a, a reunion of all the San Francisco groups, because what happened is they'd all been this community. Then they all got really famous and really didn't see each other for a long time. I just idolized these people. I wanted, you know, any reason to meet them, to find out what they were like or to, do you know what I mean? It seems like they liked having you around though, since you stuck around them (laughs) so much. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I'm pretty easygoing. Doing the same drugs, you know. <laughs> Wearing the same clothes. <laughs> Wearing, yeah, yes, exactly. I mean, you sort of ended up as Janis Joplin's Boswell, really, in a sort of manner. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I well, love that. <laughs> no, Janis Joplin was absolutely the greatest. You know, I never saw her say or do a mean thing to anybody. I mean, mm-hmm. unless you crossed her, and then, you know, she would be very fast with some absolutely devastating comeback. And she would always say to me, man, never let them have the last word. But I I don't have that gene, so unfortunately. (laughs) But Janice was a pleasure because most of the Rolling Stone interviews were basically, you know, they'd sort of say, let's get the fucking thing over with and then uh, (laughs) we can get really fucked up and find some chicks. And not, not, not that uh, I have any objection to this, but, uh, but, you know, Janice just loved talking and talked about books. And also there's an attitude, I mean, not the Stones or the Who or people like that, but a lot of rock groups pretend they'd never seen a foreign movie or read a book mm. or, you know, and so it was really interesting talking to somebody who was an old beatnik and a reader. Yeah. So Janice was one of the first books you did. You've done mm-hmm. I mean, it's Jim Morrison, Marianne Faithful, for which you, as I said earlier, won the Ralph J. Gleason Award, which is a fantastic yeah. book. I, I'm particularly fond of the one you did with Rock Scully about... Oh, yes, Living oh, with yeah. the Dead. Living with yes. the Dead. I actually met this woman who was a very high-class San Francisco prostitute and associate of the dead. And she said, oh yeah. I, she said oh, yeah, I read that book. That cocksucker, Rock Scully. (laughs) 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 Which I absolutely loved. (laughs) No, I I thought that was a fantastic, deeply depressing book about a slide into heroin addiction. Yeah. Well, I I thought, though, I tried to make it very funny, that book. Oh, it was funny. It was funny, yeah. (laughs) Well, all your books are funny, and you're one of the funniest writers that I know. Well, I remember interviewing Marianne once and asking him, I said, well, in your book, 
you said this. And she goes, oh, David just made it up. (laughs) 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 He made it all up. (laughs) But if that's the case, David, we love you all the more for it because it made for a much better read. (laughs) Well, the thing is, I think that, you know, my talent, if I have one, is to be a method writer. I mean, Mm. in other words, to get into the head and write the kind of book they would have written if they could write and that expressed their their character. And, you know, Marianne eventually started saying, oh, darling, would you write these liner notes? You do me so much better than I do myself. You know? <laughs> 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 uh, Fantastic. Yeah, I've always tried to, to, you know, express the humor and the joy of rock and roll and the wild, wretched excess and everything, because... It, it is a sort of magical kingdom, and and especially was in the era, I think, that I was writing, because nobody yes. was hugely rich. It was the joy of things being overturned. I mean, after all, I was born during the war, grew up after the war in deadly England, where you got, you know, an ounce of butter a week, and there were rations for everything to the mm-hmm. 50s, no sweets. Everything was very grim. Quonset huts, and it it was just deadly. But I think that when rock and roll hit England, it was stunning. When you hear, you know, Little Richard or Bo Diddley, I mean, it's like a freight train coming at you, you know. And that gave everybody joy and belief that, you know, there was another world. That was the 60s. All aboard! And 10 years later, I want to take you back to your Rolling Stones story and talk about one of your most famous articles, co-written with David Felton, the Charles Manson piece, which I reread and, you know, my hair stood on end again. This is, this is an extraordinary, if anyone doesn't know, and you won the Columbia School of Journalism Award for this, the incredible story of the most dangerous man alive. And you actually went to the L.A. County Jail and interviewed Manson with David Felton. And and I, I also I went out and lived on the Manson Ranch. You went to the Spawn yes. Ranch, which is almost more chilling. Let's start with the beginning, because you. I, what I really want to know is how you ended up in L.A. and and living Shay Dennis Wilson. How you how you sort of became pally with Dennis and got to know the Beach Boys. So I had gone down to L.A. actually because Derek Taylor had called me, or I called him, and and he said, you know, Brian is going to appear. He'd been sort of reclusive for a, a long amount of time, and. Do you want to come down and photograph him and the Beach Boys? So, of course, I got immediately got on a plane, came down, went out to Zuma Beach, and there are all these photographers. I mean, there are people from all over the world. I mean, Japanese and German photographers. And Brian would not cooperate with any of them. And uh, he was sort of sitting by the, by the edge of the ocean, playing with stones and things. And I felt, you know, because I have a pure heart and whatever. God, I'm getting broken up about my own. <laughs> You're going goodness. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah my, exactly. <laughs> no, but I just mean, I think he, you know, he, you know, I thought, well, he can see I'm sort of sincere. I'm not 
trying to get some picture to put on on the cover of uh, you know some magazine. And to the utter dismay of these other photographers, everything I asked him to do, he would do. And so finally I said to him, can I photograph you in the chrome of your rolls? Because it would be sort of a kind of a fisheye lens type of thing. So we went up and he crouched down. I'm taking his picture and he said, you want to come back to my place and smoke some grass? I was like utterly astounded. I mean, it's like something out of a fairy tale, you know. Here's this person I wanted to meet, would, you know, do anything. So I get in his rolls with Marilyn. We drive back. We smoke a bit of pot. Oh, and there's Dennis. I offer Dennis a joy. And he says to me, no, man, if I smoke this, I'm either going to want to kiss you or run out of the room screaming. So I thought, oh, De- Dennis is sort of a little stranger <laughs> than I thought, you know. He's just like the, the surf guy, the car guy. But yeah, yeah. Brian says, come up, so go up to the second floor. And there's Wendy on this swing, which swings to s- certain kinds of music, you know, in, in time. And as she's swinging, he says to me, I have to thank you for that, man. So I said, Brian, I... I would love to have bought you this, but I mean, I, I, I never could have afforded it. You know, I don't know. I was sort of stuttering. And then so he says, you mean you're not Phil Spector? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Brian, I mean, I don't look remotely like Phil Spector. <laughs> the odd thing was that nutty as he was, and, 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 you know, from time to time, you know, I thought he was going to say, well, I'll get someone to drive you back to wherever you're staying, which was the Tropicana. But instead, he invited me to come down. He got this new peanut butter he wanted me to taste, whatever. <laughs> oh, oh, then he asked me, where are you staying? Tropicana. He said, oh, man, you can't stay there. we got tons of room here, you know, to stay here. I mean, I was just in absolute heaven. <laughs> he just was everything, you know, you imagine he was. And, you know, whenever I've seen him subsequently, he always hugs me and he always says, David, you always turn up at just the right time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But it's, uh, uh, I saw him at Madison Square Garden. They performed, and then I wanted to go backstage, and the guys back, you know, I'd say, well, you, you know, I want to say hello to Brian, and they're, they're saying, yeah, yeah, sure, everybody does, you know. And I said, no, I know him. I and, and I'm arguing with these guys who are saying, get the fuck out of here, whatever. Then there's Brian in the background. He says, David and Andy. And he said, you know, I'm staying at this hotel. Why don't you come and visit? So I go up to the hotel and there's Brian with Dr. Landy. <laughs> and uh-huh. they walk back and forth in tandem, this big suite from one end to the other. And he's talking like, I, I, I don't know. I think I've talked at various times when I'm really high on on speed or something, and I have some paranoia that there's a little police truck outside that can hear everything, <laughs> maybe even my thoughts. And, and <laughs> Definitely your thoughts. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he would just say, it's been a wonderful tour. We've made a lot of money. Just sort of this chat and i i think it was just for you know for the benefit of dr landy wasn't gonna explain why this is happening and you know i wasn't gonna say to him there's nothing wrong with you Brian." you know right but that was the the absolute weirdest period i mean it was really spooky 
since you're talking about Dr. Eugene Landy, a fairly notorious figure, slightly less notorious than Charles Manson in the Beach Boys story, but a notorious figure nonetheless, I wonder whether Mark could introduce the week's new audio interview. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, Andy Gill interviewing Eugene Landy, and uh, later on in the interview, his wife Alexandra, who is uh, quite an important part of the Landy story. In September 1988, Brian had come over and attended a Beach Boys convention in London and had gone up and played three songs on the piano. This is the day before. So he talks about his association with the Beach Boys, talks about he claims that he was executive producer of the Beach Boys' 15 big ones in 1976, executive producer, co-writer on Brian's first solo album, a thing which is disputed by many people to this day. In fact, if you look at the Wikipedia page, his name is crossed out. Yeah, the strike through. <laughs> every, every reference. Absolutely amazing. I've never seen that on Wikipedia it, it, before. It's uh, what I didn't know that came up in this is his background was in the music business. He had been a sort of junior A&R guy. He had produced some Frank Avalon tracks. And, and discovered George Benson. Yeah, allegedly. the child. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, the thing is about this interview is you've got to take everything he says with a pinch of salt. I'm afraid so. So, so you know, that, yeah. it's fine. He claims that he just discovered a ukulele playing George Benson, playing on the curb out in the street wherever he was, which I find highly unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he then talks about leaving the music business, becoming a psychologist, helping people get off drugs, and then he starts talking about what was wrong with Brian and how he fixed him. He goes on to talk about the Pet Sound CD reissue, about Capital ruining all the Beach Boys re-releases, what went wrong in 1976 and the break with the Beach Boys, and then being called back by the band. Let's listen to the first clip. This is about coming yeah. back to the Beach Boys. They called, when they called me, they said that they were fearful that Brian Wilson would be the next billboard headline. Yeah. Uh, this was before Dennis, though. A lot, a lot of people thought that. And that, you know, he would be Brian Wilson, would be the, the billboard headline for... And that was what really the line that caused me to see Carl again when he called me. And I saw him, and then I saw him, met with Hewlett, Tom Hewlett, the manager, and a lot of people, and I agreed to come back on certain conditions, and the conditions were very harsh and strict, and they, they lived up to them, and I lived up to them, and the result is that uh, he's now strong enough to do what you saw yesterday. Yeah. People, people talk about me being some sort of Svengali. You saw me. I'm standing on this side. How could I? How could I Svengali him into whatever? Yes, it's sort of you know more of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's quite a lot of that. He talks about. Brian's ill health, being overweight, and how his advice. He starts giving Andy Gill himself advice on a non fat diet. So if, <laughs> if you're worried about your weight, people, have a listen to this interview and you'll get very good advice from the. Or don't, given that his like, <laughs> professional license was revoked yes. sometime in the yes. you know. And everything he says in this interview has been pretty much refuted by the medical <laughs> establishment. So we should probably put a health warning on this episode. Yeah, he's, he's absolutely convinced. Eat as much sugar as you like, just avoid the fat. Mm. That's, mm. That's, that's basically it. 
He talks about being, um, uh, well, we can listen to this next clip, becoming yeah. Brian's associate. Had to phone you, had to phone you just to talk to you. He's now you know, on his own self. He makes his own decisions. He's his own, his own weight in this world. Mm. Which is, which is, which is the real essence of why I was able to stop being his therapist and start to become an associate. Mm. Because he was able to detach from me enough that we could, we could differ. We could clash. We agree on lots. And we disagree on others. Yeah. And, and 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 we'll come up with he'll come up with a song and he'll ask me to you know, I know him very well. And he'll ask me to, to write lyrics to this song. California California's not so far away. Yeah, well, I mean, this really takes us to the sort of his his role in producing Brian's first solo album, which was released the same year that this interview came out, which is kind of why they're on the road sort of promoting it. And he makes great claims about his participation. We mentioned it earlier about his how this is heavily disputed by everyone. The one thing that seems to be agreed upon is that he really got in the way of making this record. Oh, They're yeah. just getting really, a track really good. And he'd say, oh, maybe Alexandra, his wife, could write some lyrics for this and so on and so forth. It's absolutely bonkers. Oh, my uh, God. I mean, he goes on his endless fights with Russ Teitelman, who's kind of the main overall producer of this thing. He talks about his relationship with the rest of the Beach Boys. We're going to play a clip at the end about this impending court case, which is to do with all of this. As I said, his wife, Alexandra Morgan, turns up, and she's every bit as nauseating as Landy himself. <laughs> they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're a pretty grim pair. It's, it's, it's gruesomely riveting. I mean, if you're a Beach Boys fan, I'd say this is a must-listen. No, I'd with, love to hear that, yeah. But yeah, with well, the caveat... Don't believe a word of it. I think <laughs> no. I think, <laughs> you can just sense Andy Gill sitting there uh, thinking, this guy is just a grade A bullshitter, isn't he? Which, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which he was. I mean, he's not he's not as repellent, funnily enough, in the interview as I expected him to be. But then I thought, this is just an act, you know, and this guy is completely deluded. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that because, I mean, my feeling about him being very nice about Russ Teitelman is to deflect any criticisms that Russ Teitelman may publicly have of him. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'd said nothing that nasty about Russ. I mean, he's right. saying all these nasty things about me, but, you know, I thought yeah. he was great and, you yeah. know, this, yeah. this sort of stuff, you know. yeah. I mean, it, it is spooky. It is one of the, sort of, you know, one of the stories about inappropriate professional behavior. And as um, Jasper alluded to earlier, I mean, the guy was, was struck off in 1992. I, I haven't got my chronology right, but this, the dual activity thing, which is an absolute no, no, you know, if you're a, if you're a, if somebody's therapist, you do not get involved in their business and become their associate. And I mean, Landy must've known this, but he's, he just, he somehow convinces himself that he's not doing anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary. I mean, he he's a, he was a really weird little guy. Uh, yeah, and he has no scruples whatsoever. No, this is, this really becomes. But I mean, even just the way he describes it, he realizes as a man with sort of really no moral sense that you can sort of identify. But uh, anyway, it's 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 it's, it's a listener. <laughs> no, no. Well, I mean, he you know he's, he's a sociopath. So he also when you say you know. He doesn't come off as a complete, you know, monster. He knows how to mimic yeah. normal behavior and his, you know, his rationalizations. And also it goes along with 
you know, megalomania and narcissism and yes, and, all of those things we've grown to love I, so I, much. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think the one feature about him is he was astute enough to identify the problems within the Beach Boys and within the Wilson family. And oh, complain. really? I'm pretty sure that you hear him talking about this. It's like he sort of regards himself as the only adult in the room, but he talks about their dysfunctional upbringing and about the father. And the mo- he says the mother was an alcoholic and all this sort of stuff. Well, and he wasn't wrong about no, the dysfunctionality. That's right. Th- that's right. But the fact is he identified it and used it in such a way as to get in there. He used it for his own purpose. For his own purpose. Exactly. Yeah. To advance yeah. his own career. Yeah. And then bringing in his wife to write songs with Brian, who really doesn't know what's going on. I yeah, mean, yeah. okay, he was yeah, in better yeah. shape in 1988 than he'd been in 1975. Well, if you read but- what Russ Teitelman people say, they actually say he wasn't in a good shape at all no, they reckon he was on medication prescribed to him by landy almost yeah, and he was enthralled to eugene landy mm-hmm. i mean that's when I mean, you've read the the beach boys literature and yeah. you just know this guy sort of had brian under a kind of spell and it's yeah. really it's really disturbing so when i saw that andy had, you know had done this interview and we had the audio of it i thought we got to add that <laughs> to, the, to the archive oh, yeah. i wanted just to and to sort of go back via Manson, just briefly, David, because in that fun, extraordinary interview, he, you actually ask him about the tracks on the Beatles' White Album. I mean, you mm-hmm. go into quite granular detail with him about Piggies and Rocky Raccoon and Helter Skelter, and obviously. And then, you know, you talk about this this horrific moment when you realize Manson was guilty. Because you saw the picture of Helter Skelter in blood on the LeBianca's wall. Right. And then there's this even more horrific moment when you realize that uh, the woman you describe as your acid bride, and I'm not going to ask you what that means, but uh, was, was <laughs> Andy was still back at the Spahn Ranch. And you, yeah. you drive very, very fast back up to Chatsworth mm-hmm. and get her the hell out of there. My question would to be would to you were did Dennis in that year of nineteen sixty-nine, between yeah. the release of twenty twenty with the song Never Learn Not to Love on it, which right. had originated with Manson himself, as as you know, did Dennis ever talk about Charles Manson to you? Oh yeah, yeah. He yeah, did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He he well, first of all, on his mantelpiece it was a bullet from I said, What is that bullet? He said, Oh, that's from Charlie Manson gift from Charlie <laughs> because uh, well because he changed a line of one of Manson's lyrics because it didn't scan and uh, you know like Manson was not going to allow that but no Dennis uh, Dennis was a complete daredevil and you know he's driving out in the desert you know 120 miles an hour without headlights and then he would say things like Charlie's cosmic you know man so I'd say well what, what do you mean Dennis then when we would come back, he would play the tracks and he would try and explain them, you know. You know, as we know, he got everything wrong. I mean, like, as you know, Helter Skelter is that silly children's slide. It, yeah. For some reason, I, the sound of the word sounds sort of ominous to Americans, but it isn't at all. And Piggies was, you know, I forget. About that. Pigs. Well, see, yeah, about actual pigs yes well i think it was isn't, well, wasn't it wasn't about the ins uh, or something like that i mean i don't know it was uh yeah i think so. something to do with but the, the thing is that you know he completely misinterpreted all these tracks 
But this is the first time I had heard this thing, which is now, you know, part of the whole Manson story. But mm-hmm. can you imagine, I'm sitting there with Dennis drinking beer, and he's telling me this. And I knew quite a bit about it because I'd written a short piece about the White Album in Rolling Stone. I think one of my first articles that actually Jan Wenner signed his own name to. But (laughs) (laughs) But that's another episode. Yes. (laughs) I was, uh, he, he added one paragraph and then he just put his name. But I was so thrilled to see my name in type. I went to Jonathan Codd. I said, look. And he said, but David Jans put his name on. I didn't care. But the thing is, so from Dennis, I knew that Manson, like all of us, took these messages from Dylan, you know, from Hendrix, whatever, you know. They were messages to us. And then the DA got so fed up with me. One day he said, come here, kid, let me show you something. And he pulled out this drawer and... They're like, I think, like four by four inch color photographs and the most horrendous things you can imagine. I mean, sure. most gruesome. And, of course, in it, I see Helter Skelter, misspelled, but nevertheless, and mm-hmm. piggies. And at that point, I knew he'd done it. Right. I mean, and I'm living on the ranch. Well, I call it, we, we got married on acid. The reason I say acid bride is because... Her name is Andy, and because my involvement with Andy Warhol, you know, everybody says, what do you mean, Andy? You know, Andy was Andy Warhol was on the Manson Ranch with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mind-bending idea. No, I, I know, but, <laughs> but, you know, the ridiculous way people think of the 60s sure. now, you know, it yeah. all seems possible. It's all, you know. So at that point, Andy was still out on the Spawn Ranch, so I hitchhiked back. And the first person I come in t- contact with is this sort of hillbilly killer, Clem Tufts, with that one broken tooth. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a little like rear window. I I couldn't look him in the eye because all the people on the Manson Ranch were very kind of psychic. It, it was like Village of the Damned, you know. They were yeah. all tuned in. I mean, they really were. So we were perfectly safe. As long as we, we didn't doubt or question or, you know what I mean? Sure. And I couldn't let him see. So, I God, I must have tons of pictures of him. So I said, it's like the middle of the day, it's like 120 degrees. I said, Andy, let's get some horses and go for a ride. And she said, are you out of your mind? It's 120 degrees. <laughs> you know, I said, get the horses. So she said, all right, crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> Just get the horses uh, yeah. or we're going to die. Oh, my God. So yeah. we go up and there's all these weird burial mounds, that, you know, and the faces in the rocks. And Did you see Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in yeah, Hollywood? I, I did. Yeah. Did that, did that trigger some ugly flashbacks for you? Well, what was amazing is the way they reconstructed the Spawn Ranch. Because, it felt very authentic, didn't oh, it? Oh, it was I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, it was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. The way they de- depicted Mr. Spawn was, kind of, you know, ridiculous. And his wife, you know, they were just a very sweet couple. But so Andy says, I said, we've got we've got to leave. We've got to get out of here. I don't know how we're going to do it because, you know, they're so psychic. They're going to sense something. And so Andy says, well, I have some clothes, honey, that I bought at Cher's boutique. I said, fuck the clothes. 
If you get your clothes together, we are dead. We're going to end up in a drain ditch. And so what we hit upon was having an argument, you know, which is easy enough, sort of like, I know you fucked her and, you know, one of those shouting things. So we walked up to the main road doing that and then hitchhiked into L.A. And that was the end of that. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Give up your work. Come on, you can't be. I'm going to take you back to the Beatles, where we were just we're heading in towards the Beatles, and, and yeah. the reason for that is that you and Jonathan Cott mm-hmm. wrote the text for the only book the Beatles ever commissioned, mm-hmm. apart from, I guess, you know, things that accompanied the the anthology box sets. If you count them as books, maybe there's been something since then. But as far as I know, that book, Get Back, which was based on you and Jonathan sitting around, I guess, in the Let It Be sessions. And since the Get Back uh, documentary came out not that long ago and the rooftop concert film was recently released here in cinemas, I thought it'd be a, a, a great time just to talk about your memories of the Beatles, how that came about, how you came to uh, work on on that book, Get Back. Oh, well, you know, oddly enough, it came from the Stones. The Stones were doing... The Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which of right. course didn't come out for 28 years. But anyway, I was at Maddox Street one day and, and Mick said, I'm thinking of uh, putting a book in, you know. I mean, this was sort of an era when, you know, you couldn't just have an album. You have a double album, have had a board game or something in it. Yeah. <laughs> so it had to book. be perfumed like yeah. Euros record. Yeah. yeah, rolling papers, whatever. But so I said, well, we'll make what, what kind of book? And he said, you're the bloody writer. How should I know? <laughs> you, you figure it out. But anyway, while I was thinking about that and thinking, oh, my God, what, what good fortune is this? John had heard about it, and now he wanted to put a book in. But they, that, those sessions were ended sort of in January of 69, uh, I think. And, you know, they were planning to put it out very soon. And, of course, people who don't write books, they don't realize it takes a little longer recording an album, you know what I mean? I mean, I try and say, well, you know, Little Richard might have recorded a whole album in four hours, but, you know, you can't write a book in four hours. So uh, two things. I had to listen to, like, over 200 hours of tapes from the sessions. They gave me all the tapes and two Uber tape recorders. Asterix said, oh, so you can copy a bunch of things and sell them on the side. I said, yeah, exactly. Derek, is that what Derek <laughs> Taylor said? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that would be Derek. Yeah. yeah. No, but the real reason was in order to transcribe them, mm. you know, it was mind-blowingly monotonous. Two of us Sunday driving. I mean, you know, 190 takes of that or something. I yeah. mean, I would confess to anything. Uh, you know, it was... <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I blame John for getting us into this. I mean, not that we weren't doing a, a little bit of leapers as it was, but 
I went out and got some serious amphetamine because we were up for, days. I don't know, three or four days doing this, finding the thing, transcribing it, writing it. And, you know, I went into a kind of uh, mental state where I thought my thoughts were crushing my brain. And I did go to see one of these gentlemen who sort out your problem. He was a friend of R.D. Lang's, David Cooper. He was completely nutty oh, guy. yes, yes. Yes, he was, but he was a wonderful guy, though. And but anyway, he he said to me, "No, thoughts can't. It's but there's a muscle on the top of your head." And he said, "Well, have you been sleeping okay lately?" So I said, "Well, Doctor Cooper, not at all, actually." So, but but anyway, um, what what it was, and I think none of these films of the Beatles of the Let It Be sort of capture the really, I, I mean, obviously there were huge tensions and, and, you know, problems, and they were really beating up on poor old George. George, such a miserable character he was. <laughs> but this is sort of, you know, you, you never want to say these things because, you know, people idolize him. And the image of George is absolutely, you know, joyful and cosmic and all of that. But he was a miserable guy before Eric went off with his wife or whatever, and <laughs> and, and and the Beatles, uh, you know, trashed him in this thing. I mean, he would come up with a song, and then John would do this horrible imitation of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something, something. I don't know what it is, but it's something. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Do you think they cut some of the, the nastier sort of moments out of the film? Because the thing that surprised me about Get Back, Jackson's thing, was it was actually they all seemed to be quite affectionate towards each other. But that you're saying that's not how you remember it. Well, there was, you know, there were obvious, obvious tensions. And, you know, I hate to say this, but they are English. And they, <laughs> yeah. don't say I, it, David. Don't I, say it. I used to be. <laughs> I, 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 I actually am still a British citizen, just out Are of you. Okay. Uh, but, but I think, no, but what I miss is the sort of fun and joy. And I don't see it in either or any of these films. I mean, there's a whole thing. I, I didn't watch the whole Peter Jackson's film, but. You know, there's one whole thing. I mean, I have 17 hours of, of sort of outtakes of the best of that stuff. From, Which you're going to section. send to us, aren't you? To put I'd on love Rock's to do back that. Pages. <laughs> <laughs> I actually endured the whole however many hours of the documentary Eight? that was. You know that stuff was cut, which was nastier about George, because in the original movie, there's a scene which doesn't appear in a documentary where... Paul McCartney's telling George what to do, and George more or less says, look, I'll play if you want me to play. If you don't want me to play, I won't play. And it's right. full of bad, you know, yeah. poisonous vibes. That doesn't appear in the Jackson movie. No. So the, the, I think that what you were saying, Barney, is right. There was some attempt to at least massage down some of the conflicts going on between George and the rest of the band because they treated it much nicer than I was led to believe was going to be seen on the screen. But 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 in the little bit I saw, they didn't have the, the funnier parts. The repartee between John and Paul, between John and Ringo, are classic. I mean, they, they were just yeah, so funny. the funniest musical characters. Yeah. And then 
doing all these old songs, I mean, oh my God, that's just, you know, unbelievable. I mean, would it be wrong to state that this movie was very much Paul McCartney's version of events? Oh, absolutely. Well, Paul, you know, has always had that sort of... And he's the last one outside Ringo, he's the last one standing, and he therefore has control over most things to do with the Beatles these days, I'd guess. Wouldn't, Barney, wouldn't you say that's... Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, yeah, Ringo must have had some input and perhaps Olivia Harrison had a little bit of input. She's a producer on it. But, I, you know, the the feeling one gets is that it's meant to leave a very, you know, good feeling in your yes. gut about the band. I just, before the podcast, watched the last bit on the rooftop again. And... I did love it to my, you know, to my sort of surprise in a way. I, a, I thought they just sounded great and there was something really charming about it. And of course, there's all that hilarious stuff with the the PC plot <laughs> down in reception. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the Vox Pops with the people on Savile Row. I mean, yeah. it, is, it is extraordinary stuff. It, but, it's, stri- it's striking how... The, the band are a shambles until Billy Preston walks in the room and suddenly they realise they've got to raise their game and they suddenly yeah. start playing like a proper That's, rock and yeah, roll. Yeah, they really That's sound pretty yeah. pretty damn tight, I think, by the time they're on the roof. And I, I, I happen to... I know those songs are generally disparaged as being a bit kind of back to basics. I rather, I have to say, I rather like them. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. love Get Back. It made me realise I was really fond of those songs. Dig a Pony, I think, is a great song. And then when they when they they go back to one after nine oh nine, which 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 they what kind of used to play in nineteen sixty in Hamburg, yeah, in Hamburg. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it. There's something rather wonderful about it. Did the series did it take you back to that experience of working with them, interviewing them, and transcribing them? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I just wish it had been better done and and had okay. you know more of a focus i mean it just sort of rambled and mm. talking about the the old songs one of the things that i i always thought was sort of very mean of paul was you know joe joe get back because you know that linda's husband was uh, joseph c he was an anthropologist and he eventually committed suicide there's all kinds of stories about it you know, to use him as the prototype for this character who should sort of get back and get it together. going to have to wrap this up pretty soon, but I'm just going to... Oh, no, um, wait a minute, I've got five more hours of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what Peter Goralnik said. Yeah. <laughs> but I do need to ask my colleagues just to tell us about any pieces that have caught their attention this week going to the library. Yeah. And if you hear something that kind of uh, trigger some memory, you know, feel free mm-hmm. to to jump in. But Mark, what? give us a few pieces you've added this, this last well, fortnight. Yeah, uh, last week, this is absolutely great. Max Jones, Melody Maker, 1958, a live review of Muddy Waters playing St Pancras Town Hall. And he says, I was surprised to read that Muddy Waters was coolly received in Leeds. There's London appearance on Monday. The applause was hot and strong. 
He didn't meet with unanimous approval, of course. There were some who could not hear his voice properly over the powerfully amplified guitar, and others who simply do not care for the electric instrument at all. Now, this is interesting. Chris Barber brought Muddy Waters over with Otis Spann as his piano player from his, from his band. And Muddy Waters is an electric guitar player. He plays electric Chicago blues. Yeah. But he, in 1958, there was a subset of British blues fans who felt that electric guitar was an abomination, that the only genuine blues could be played in acoustic. The next time Muddy Waters came after this to England, he actually came wearing a bib and brace overalls and playing acoustic guitar. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, it's just brilliant to have this the very first review of so this. This is 1958, isn't it? 1958, Muddy yeah. Waters' first show in London. It's fantastic. I remember Howling Wolf coming to yeah, London. Yeah. And because of the British musicians thing, you know. You, so here is Howling Wolf, like huge, I mean, kind of mythical character and fantastically huge. And then his the band was all these very skinny, tiny English musicians. <laughs> yes. It was just yeah. sort of... Yeah. yeah. I actually knew one or two who played with, with, with Harlem Wolf back in the 60s. Were they all tiny and skinny? They, well, one of them, <laughs> yes. one of them was, John, was John Dummer, who was, right, was yes. in the darts later. And my friend Martin Stone was playing guitar on that tour. And John Dummer was on it. He played the previous tour. And he said, where's that drummer? One who's no bigger than my dick. That puts it in proportion. It certainly does. They also said that he's a lovely man. Lovely. Well, that's what Peter Garalnik said that didn't yeah. he, on the last episode. What's next? Ninety-six-six. Pete Johnson on Blonde on Blonde. Uh, he says, coupled with his writing talent, as Dylan's Blonde on Blonde, is one of the worst voices in the annals of high fidelity. But his records sell well because he has generated a romantic legend on the order of James Dean's. Actually, it's a very favourable review. So this is that's the one slightly carpy paragraph I've hauled out. I there. think it's David's favourite album of all time, if I'm yeah, not it mistaken. Is. Absolutely. Well, there we go. <laughs> Richard Goldstein, The Village Voice, March 67, on The Who. And he says, in the backstage half-light of the RKO 58th Street Theatre, Pete Townsend awaits his cue. Stagehands pace furiously, shouting orders in bizarre New Yorkese. A stray go-go girl stands rubbing up her apart eyes until they redden the streak. A straggling blue magoo, a soggy member of the Mitch Ryder band, a distant mandala mill about like condemned men waiting for the padre. High above, streaks of blue and magenta soar across the ceiling. On stage, Marty Kay is doing his patois while the audience shouts, We want, we want anyone. Muffled scratching is audible behind the stage door. The groupie brigade. They bribe the doorman with a wink, a kid giggle. You can never lock them out totally. They squat outside the dressing rooms, scratching like exiled cats. Let them in. It's a party, isn't it? The big one with braces and a huge distended tongue is eyeing Keith, the drummer. Paper cup in hand, he slips on the corridor floor. Better watch it, she murmurs. Why, Keith, laugh answers. Because I might jump you. <laughs> I, I it's just fantastic. Since '67, maybe one of the first write-ups of the groupie phenomenon. It's quite possible. Oh, that's fantastic! It's it's, 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 re it's really good stuff. Oh, well, very briefly, Ed McCormack, Rolling Stone '75, at the end of the Elton John tour. That was how the perennial shit, the proverbial fan, the disc jockey's blonde wife, said that she had merely approached Elton as a fan, and he had told her to get lost and called her a slag, which means a really scuzzy groupie in the slang of British rock musicians. But singer-songwriter Bobby Noeworth claims the blonde started it by first calling Elton a fag, which means a cigarette in the same argot. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. This week, Brian Epstein to Maureen Cleave, Evening Standard 63. When I saw, first saw the Beatles, their presence came flowing over the stage. 
I think they sense I'm a fan of theirs, and they'll make plenty more money. Plenty more. And that's just, this, is, this is like February 63, very early days. That's fantastic. Great to have Max Jones interviewing Johnny Mercer, the songwriter, in 74. Yeah. I mean, it's just great to have a piece on Johnny Mercer from the site, because I don't think this is the very first one we got. He says, my voice has never been very good, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid that now I don't care. And then about another song, it's a saloon song. The same idea as one for my baby. Yes, I spent my share of time in them. I'm surprised I'm alive after it. <laughs> <laughs> It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me Doc Pomus to Gary Kenton, musician 1982. I tell you, the worst thing that ever happened to songwriters was Bob Dylan. Because <laughs> he's able to write great philosophical type of song. <laughs> oh, he, he, was a, he was a dear man, Doc Pomus. Yeah. So dear. great. He would always have people over to his house... Crowd of people, absolutely, and tons of records. He'd let you put on anything and ask him anything. He was just the greatest guy. Fantastic. He was wheelchair bound, wasn't he? He had sort he of. He had polio. Yeah, he was a polio yeah. victim. He he would come. He would come to any opening I had at any club in his wheelchair. I mean, I was like unbelievably, you know, touched by this. It was, Fantastic. Oh, yeah, glorious. That's really good. Jasper, do you have any treats for us? Oh, just a couple of quick things to mention since we're nearly out of time. First of which is from from last week, which is Paul Lester profiling Kendrick Lamar in 2012, which I just thought was cool because it just once again shows, as we talked about with Kate Mossman a few weeks ago, how on the money Paul Lester was with his new Band of the Week series. Definitely. I mean, you know, not that Kendrick is nobody in 2012. He's he's released a couple of mixtapes and stuff, but this is right as he's releasing his first album, Good Kid, Mad City. And Paul Lester just just gets it right, you know, independent, idiosyncratic, 25-year-old rapper from Compton who's been making waves in hip-hop circles and has just cooked up a recipe for the big time. And, of course, he did make the big time, and, and he's one of my favourite rappers, and, and he's just, you know, huge. It's now. nice when yeah. you spot someone spotting someone <laughs> yeah. straight away. It's, 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 it's very cool. Yeah, and, and he, get, he gets the production of it right as well, you know, saying that, that he's looking forward to Good Kid, Mad City because some of the producers that made Section 80 such a diverse delight are on the credits of it with its astral jazz, comatose funk, and manic 8-bit interludes, <laughs> which I think wow. is actually captures lots of different That's elements of, of, of Kendrick's sound, which is super. The other thing is actually the who I just mentioned, Kate Mossman. Mossman on Music, her new Statesman column, where she goes to see, or is sent to see, I don't know if she'd have chosen to go see it, the American Idiot musical, <laughs> the Green Day musical. Oh, yeah, I went to that. It's just, it's, I went to that. What did you think? I thought it was a big, overblown... Nonsense, really. I mean, you know, it was just, um, you know, meant to sort of overwhelm you with all these television sets and everything. The director of it was meant to direct the Janice movie that I wrote that never never happened. So I went to see it for that. Kate's not particularly impressed by it. The new Green Day musical reminds me of the bit in Naked Gun 33 and a Third, where they're reading out the Oscar nominations for Best Supporting Actress. Fatal Affair, one woman's ordeal to overcome the death of her cat, set against the background of the Hindenburg disaster. (laughs) Basic analysis, one woman's fight against a yeast infection, set against the background of the tragic Buffalo Bill season of 1968. (laughs) Billy Joe Armstrong's two-hour stage show, the American Idiot musical, is one man's failure to put his trousers on, set against the backdrop of 9-11 and 
and the invasion of Iran. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, this is just Kate being Kate being great. Yeah. So that's yeah, not what I wanted to mention. Brilliant. That's it. That's your lot. I will mention just one piece because it's just timely, which is a review by Tim Riley of the Boston Phoenix from 1990 of a book called Rock Around the Block, A History of Rock Music in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, which sounds it's like a slightly turgid volume, but it does include this story about the Rolling Stones, beloved of all of us, kicking off or playing in Warsaw in April 1967. And this is how Riley describes the passage in the book. 11,000 fans showed up to hear the concert, but only 3,000 were available. Violence erupted on the streets as a class clash took shape inside Warsaw's Congressional Hall. The rows nearest the stage were occupied by the siblings of Communist Party bureaucrats, irking guitarist Keith Richards. They're sitting there with their diamonds and their pearls and their fingers in their ears, Keith remembers. About three numbers, and I say, fucking stop playing, Charlie. You fucking lot get out and let those bastards in the back down front. And the, wow. ensuing, the ensuing mayhem, according to the book, and as reported in Communist Party papers, put a freeze on rock concert life throughout the Soviet bloc. Fantastic. Which is extraordinary, yeah. that really. I mean, I don't the, know. If, yeah. That must be one of the Stones' last tours before the 69 American tour. They stopped yeah. it there, didn't they, 67? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So anyway, it just caught my eye, yeah, given yeah. what's been happening in the last week well Quite. the last two months really so anyway we won't go back to that the last eight years or whatever the last eight years the lo- exactly exactly so well i could i just say one thing yes, not, i mean i'm sure you've covered it but i thought lenny k's book lightning strikes was unbelievable yes well, we I had mean, Lenny on. We had Lenny on, and oh, he was oh, a wonderful you, uh, guest. yeah he yeah. was great he was yeah. super yeah that was incredible that book that just it was great it was great Listen, I think we're going to wrap up. We'll hear one last clip from the Eugene Landy audio. But I'd like to say thank you on behalf of David Dalton and ourselves. And I hope we've passed the audition. Boom. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Mark, talk us out. Thank you, David, well, it, so much for being with us. It's just Landy bollocking on this time about his impending court case. We can have a listen to this. But shall we say goodbye? Sadly. Thank bye. you so much, David. Oh, wow. It's really been fun. It really has. I wonder why. about the, the um, court case or whatever it is you've got coming up? Well, that's going to come up. Um, and they're going to have to decide whether or not I hurt Brian Wilson or not. Whether or not uh, I have... Uh, yes, there is dual capacity, but uh, you know, in this case, you see, none of this would be a problem if I failed. Mm. Yeah. And he had died, I'd have no problem. But the yeah. fact that I've succeeded in succeeding... Now, this isn't illegal. It's, there's a code of ethics. Hmm. And the ethical code says you can't have a dual capacity as a therapist and anything else. And I'm saying he couldn't do this. This man wouldn't have been able to do what he does if I had not been the person I had been, his therapist, and then been this other person, his co-writer, his producer. I've been just like a-
That was Eugene Landy in conversation with Andy Gill in 1988, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Dalton. Find his excellent biographies at any good bookshop and read his writing on RBP. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition.